Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. They're bluffing when they lead the, the, you know, the public to believe that this is what the science supports. No, it doesn't. The fact that we're just so casually talking about, well, how, what do we want global average temperature to be in the year 2100? As if we're just like adjusting the thermostat, you know, on an inter- in a house or something. That's showing this degree of hubris among some of, you know, the people involved in this p- policy discussion. Another edition of Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. I'm delighted today to be talking to Dr. Robert Murphy. He is a senior fellow with the Mises Institute and of course a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute. He's done a lot of work looking at uh, the reports from the IPCC panel from last year. There's obviously some new reports out as well and they seem to be amping up in increasing alarm and we're going to find out whether that alarm is justified. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here, Danielle. So let's um let's begin by by understanding what happened when the fifth assessment report came out, so that we know that we're kind of on a new trajectory of talking about the issue of global emissions and the urgency of dealing with them. And you've you've taken a, a deep look into that. So so first of all, explain to us what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is and and how it is that they really switched the narrative when that last report came out. Okay, sure. So the um, when it comes to climate change science, the UN formed this special body called the IPCC, which stands for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And they started issuing reports that came out, I think like every four to six years, something like that was the schedule. And they called them assessment reports. So there was the first one, you know, they call FAR, the first assessment report, and then the second and so forth. And so the fifth assessment report or what is sometimes just referred to as AR5, that came out uh, around 2014. And they have different volumes. Like one just summarizes, you know, the, the 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 physical science in terms of just, okay, you know, CO2 emissions or other greenhouse gas emissions, what does that do to the atmosphere? How much more heat does that trap? Things. So it's just purely um, supposedly objective statements about chemistry and physics. And then they have other volumes dealing more with like human impacts and then what should pol- what policy should governments do. And so the the ostensible purpose of these periodic assessment reports is just to distill the latest peer-reviewed research, both in terms of, again, the, the physical relationships, like just to know cause and effect if we emit so many more tons of CO2, what happens? And then also the um, the policy literature too, because it's you need to know, oh, well, if you want governments to do such and such, how do we know what effect that's going to have, you know, because that might have other impacts on the economy or society. And so just to come up with a framework of how do you balance the costs and benefits of these policies. So that's why it's not merely natural physical sciences that are involved, but also a lot of economists, for example, who publish in the area of climate change, um, you know, get get cited in, the, in these volumes. So like I say, as of 2014, they, they started releasing the AR5, and it was, and what happens with these things is every time it comes out, it's always, oh, the situation is worse than we thought. Like that, that you know, you you just, you could 
go to the bank betting that that's what they're going to say every time. And they did that too with the fifth assessment report. But on the other hand, they are having to refer to peer review literature. And there are, you know, even though there are cynics out there who think that the process is right, it's, it's difficult to get, you know, things published unless you're careful in terms of, you know, looking at the both sides of the issue. And so the conclusions that are in these assessment reports were actually quite tepid or modest. Like they, they were very reluctant to attribute extra hurricanes to climate change and things like that, because it's hard to make that case rigorously. And, um, and then what happened though, there was a, a sea change in 2018 when they came out with a special report on the, uh, on a 1.5 C target of, of climate change. And so that is the, the study that Ross McKittrick and I recently released for Fraser, where we looked at the huge gap between what the IPCC said in 2014 then in 2018. And now let me yep, let me pause you there because we're going to then have to to talk mm -hmm. about put it into context of some of the most recent reports that have come out as mm -hmm. well, which have amped up the hysteria just one more level with Antonio Guitares saying this is a death knell for the fossil fuel business and 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 talking about how dramatically we need to move on these targets within the next few years. So what I'm this and and you've said something really important, which is that in the academic discipline, you have to be very careful. You have to be very balanced. You have to be careful about what you attribute and state with certainty. And so there's something that is getting missed in translation with that careful, methodical, scientific process that underpins the report. And then the summary for policymakers. And can you can you explain what happens in that translation process? Because uh, from what I understand, there's often a bit of a mismatch in the tone. Oh, absolutely. It's, and so you're right that w a lot of the work that I would do both for the Fraser Institute and then um, for a while, I, I'm no longer with them, but I worked for what was called the Institute for Energy Research, which was a DC based think tank where I just specialize in this climate change economic literature. It All you would have to do to show that like whenever a new IPCC report would come out and then the headlines would run, you know, really shocking over the top proclamations of how if humanity doesn't do such and such within the next 12 years, we're all dead. You know, I mean, I'm barely exaggerating. I'm sure your listeners and viewers know that they hear rhetoric like that. And it's not that you'd have to go to the Fraser Institute's alternative data or go to the Heritage Foundation. The U no, you would just go read the actual literature summarized in the IPCC report. And like you said, there was different layers. So it was like the media headlines and the quotes given to the press were one level of alarm. The actual summary for policymakers was much more modest and, you know, more careful in what they said. And then in the same, you know, assessment report, if you went to the longer, you know, full chapters, not just the summary that they distilled for policymakers, but the actual material where they literally cited the literature and summarized, you know, so-and-so, and then, you know, 97 papers said such and such. If you go look at that, then it's even weaker still. And so it's just, there's, it's sort of like a telephone game where every level of taking it and then, you know, sort of summarizing it, like, here's the news you can use and then giving it to a broader audience and, and sort of dumbing it down, it ramped up the alarm such that, yes, the, the statements by the time it would get to the standard media outlets was not at all. I mean, they were false statements. They were, you, you, it was not at all. You could just go to the IPCC's own document that they just released to refute some of these more alarmist claims. And so when we look at the most recent alarmist claims, is has something fundamentally changed in the science or is it just sort of a a continuation of that same kind of mismatch that so there's some uh, political statements being made that made that don't necessarily match the underlying academic papers 
so I, I think we'll probably get into more of the details, you know, as this discussion unfolds, but just, yeah, the big picture summary is, um, so yes, the, the latest one is more alarmist, if you will. And part of what the emphasis is now is they're, they're saying that they're, they're much more confident in what's called attribution. So, you know, they could document that, ah, yes, you know, wildfires are doing such and such, uh, hurricanes are doing such and such, you know, heat waves. But it's hard to say, what does that do to? Because there's so many natural factors of variability when it comes to the climate system that it's hard to definitively say, oh, this is because of you know extra greenhouse gas emissions from human activity. But in the latest one, they're they're stating that with more confidence than they have in previous reports. So I think mm -hmm. that's one qualitative difference, um, and they're they're much more uh, comfortable leading the reader to believe that the 1.5 C target so again just for the listeners who don't know the context the paris climate agreement had stated as a as a minimum goal let's limit total global warming to two degrees celsius and by that they mean relative to like the 1850s like you know pre-industrial times limit total global warming i think right now it's about 1.1 c that's already happened and so but then once that became standard then the activists sort of amped up and said well that's that's too liberal that's that's allowing too much warming there's too many dangers so let's now cap it at 1.5 c or at least use that as the new sort of you know ideal target and so i again the, the 2018 report from the un the ipcc specifically talked about that the feasibility of this 1.5 c new you know lower ceiling more tighter constraint and then this ar6 the the sixth assessment report that came out uh, you know in, in summer of 2021 that's the one that is is more in line with that but again they're mm -hmm. they're actually very careful like they can't just come out and say we're telling policymakers you should do this instead it's it's more of a well if you were to do this here's the way you would do it to minimize the economic impact you know so that's a true statement you know according to literature but they're actually being kind of coy about denying or, or hiding the fact that the economic literature says this 1.5 c target would be an utter disaster Hmm. Well, that's what we've got to talk about because hmm. I, I think it's now so embedded because of the way in which it is. I, I hate to use this term, but it, it sounds like it's the accurate one. The way it's marketed mm -hmm. is that it's not reflective of what the academics have found. It's not reflective of what the economists are saying is the balance. And, and yet those are the headlines that people are going to be set with that we must make sure that we do not increase uh, temperature by 1.5 degrees Celsius. And it gives the impression that we, we can achieve that, that we understand the relationship between how many emissions lead to a certain temperature change. And I, I'm not even sure if we know that either, uh, because we can control emissions, totally get it. But can we actually control how that manifests in, in 1.5 degree worth of warming or more. I'm not even sure how those two things connect. Are you able to shed some light on, on why they have such certainty that, that it's a temperature target that we need to meet as opposed to an emissions target? Okay, yeah, so that's a great question. So you're right, with, and I'm glad you brought that up. So with all this stuff, I usually try to like sort of give a caveat at the outset and say, you know, I'm stipulating this framework just to show even on their own terms, you know, these policy conclusions do not follow at all. And so they're bluffing when they lead the, the, you know, the public to believe that this is what the science supports. No, it doesn't. But you're, you're right that the fact that we're just so casually talking about, well, how, what do we want global average temperature to be in the year 2100? 
as if we're just like adjusting the thermostat, you know, on an NT in a house or something. That's showing this degree of hubris among some of you know the people involved in this po policy discussion. That you know, there's so many factors involved, and you know, imagine people in the year 1900 pontificating about what they were going to do with stagecoaches or whatever to affect the temperature in the year 2000. Like, you know, I mean, there's just so much that's going to change in a century. It's sort of ludicrous to assume that, you know, people in three generations are going to be lamenting what we did. It's there's so much more information and technology they're going to have at their disposal. So I, on the one hand, this whole enterprise is a bit ridiculous. But the, to answer your question, the reason they picked a, a, a temperature target is because there are different ways of hitting that. And so um, so it's not there are things besides just emissions that, that that could affect it. And so that's, that's partly why um, they use it. And also it's emissions per se is not the thing that directly impacts human welfare. So I think that's an, another reason where they pick the temperature target. And I, I believe also, because you mentioned the word marketing, I think it's easier to get the public on board with, we're doing such and such to keep it from getting too hot. Like people understand that, oh yeah, I don't want it to get too hot. Whereas if you said, we're going to limit emissions to so-and-so gigatons, that doesn't mean anything to anybody. And so, Got wait it. a minute, my gasoline is going to be more expensive because of this, this gigaton emissions cap. I don't think, but oh, I don't want it to get too hot next summer. I think people can understand what that means. Well, that's the real problem, isn't it? It is such a complex area and it's been really boiled down to what fits in a headline. And I think that's what's frustrating about it is that if you want to have a genuine academic detailed discussion about where we are at, you automatically automatically get flagged as somebody who is somehow doubting the science. And so I want to try to, to address some of that a bit so that so that people know that we're trying to have a genuine, honest discussion about what is achievable, what is achievable and what are the trade-offs, what to, and, and and what the policy ought to be. And and how do you address that issue so that you're not so that this conversation isn't flagged as, right. as, as being a denier conversation. Right, right. Oh, okay, so what do you want me to address? It? So number one is notice, again, the rhetoric, and I'm, I'm not by any means the first person to point it, but just them using that term denier, of course, harkens back to Holocaust denial. So even right there, that's kind of a loaded term to you know label their opponents climate change deniers. Um, and, so, and so that's that's one thing just to kind of show that this is not, a very fair debate when they're using language like that. Also, like the, they'll say things like clean energy versus dirty energy. Mm -hmm. Well, it's hard to have a rational discussion when you're using labels like that. But um, I want to be, be clear yeah, for your, your listeners that everything I say in this interview and all the stuff that's in my Fraser studies that we may allude to, I am stipulating for the sake of argument, all of the, you know, the natural physical science relationships, right? So I'm not here saying, Oh, there's uncertainties and who can talk about we're stipulating all that. We're looking at the peer-reviewed research of the po policy analysis, right? So that like economists who come in, for example, and say, okay, if we were to have a carbon tax of such and such, that would reduce emissions by this amount. And then that would, you know, the, the physical scientists, the climate scientists are telling us that would limit global warming to such and such. And by our estimates, that would have these impacts. But on the other hand, energy would be more expensive. So that would hurt humans. And then you try to balance the two, you know, cost benefit analysis. And that's what they do. So as part of that analysis, they just take as a given as an input, here's what the physical scientists, you know, the chemists and physicists and so forth are telling us about relationships in the material world. And then we that's, you need to know that, like, just to give an analogy, if we were going to say, should we go build a base on the moon? 
you would need physicists and chemists to tell you certain facts about how the world works, like to know how many, you know, how much fuel do we need to get a base up there? How much, how many spacesuits do we need? Things like that. But that wouldn't tell us whether it was a good idea to spend the money to do that. There, there's a lot more involved than just the raw physical science. And so likewise, in the climate change debate, yeah, we do need to know certain relationships like greenhouse gas emissions and methane versus CO2 and things like that. You need to know that stuff, but that's not the end of the story. So a physicist is not qualified to tell us, you know, we should have a carbon tax of $60 a ton because that involved that analysis involves, you know, human welfare and other judgments. And that's areas where economists actually have spent a lot of time studying those trade-offs and like, how do we go about public policy? So, th so that's, you know, again, I, I want to be clear that here, I am referring to maybe Danielle. One way to summarize it is in 2018, William Nordhaus won the Nobel Prize for his work on the economics of climate change. The, the, the weekend that that was announced was also the weekend when the UN released its report on 1.5 C. Nordhaus's mm -hmm. own Nobel Prize winning work shows that the 1.5 C target would be so disastrous, it would be better for humanity if governments did nothing about climate change. And that is, I guess, the fundamental irresponsibility mm, in this right. conversation that has me frustrated is that it seems like, um, and, and you talk about trade-offs and we'll talk more about that, but it really should be the role of the policymaker to put that into context. And yet rather than the policymaker putting it into context and talking about the trade-offs, they are amping it up to an extreme mm. level where I think the public is left with the impression that if we don't phase out fossil fuels 100% completely as soon as 2030, but if, you know, 2050 at the latest, that mm -hmm. we're going to go extinct. And I'm, I'm not kidding. That's sort of the language right. that is being right. used and the way it's being framed by, by groups such as Extinction Rebellion. And I'm hoping that we can bring a little bit more, more sanity to the conversation. I'll tell, I'll tell you where I'm coming from about how I like to talk about this, because um, I've been watching the parts per million measure at Mauna Loa, Mauna Loa, I hope mm -hmm. I have the, the, the peak right, because I expected, just like everybody else, that we went through this period of 18 months of slowdown and reduction in activity and reduction in emissions, that we would see some manifestation of that in the ambient level of CO2 uh, uh, that was measured in the air at this station. And to my great surprise, it's uh, continued to go up. 14, 418 parts per million, I think is is the last time I checked it. Whereas the, the more extreme environmental groups think that the optimal level is 350 parts per million. So there's something else going on there about why it is that emissions are not having the kind of impact that you would see on parts per million, which then says to me, there's it's not really all that certain that we can say this level of parts per million in the atmosphere corresponds to this temperature. It seems to me the only thing we can actually control is our level of emissions. And so I don't mind talking about a target of getting to net zero emissions as mm. opposed to talking about we're going to have, um, a, we're going to limit the temperature change to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Are you okay with me framing it that way for us to talk about emissions rather than whether we can achieve certain temperature targets? So I, I certainly agree with you that humans have, you know, the, the thing that they can control first is, is emissions and then that only indirectly impacts global temperature as you as you say there's all sorts of there other variables going on and you know th things like oh if there's uh if you know if, if there's if there's more melting or the other uh, things then you know what happens in terms of reflecting sunlight back depending on the surfaces that are exposed and there, there's all sorts of things 
as, as industrialization continues and there's the urban heat island effect. So there's, in other words, with the same amount of emissions, yes, you could have different temperature outcomes. And so emissions is not the sole variable. So you're, you're certainly right. Um, so I think you're correct to think in terms of emissions as, as like the lever that you humans have more direct control over. The, the literature, though, like in terms of the reports that, that we did, they're, you know, we, we had those things couched in temperature ceiling targets. Like, so, for example, what I recently just said to say that Nordhaus talked about, you know, the, he even said a two degree Celsius ceiling would be so disastrous that it would be better if humanity did nothing rather than try to pursue such a draconian target. Okay, I think I need to explore this a little bit more with you because mm. I, I guess here's the issue is I think we can get to a point of net zero emissions, mm. but I'm wondering if we're setting ourselves up for failure if, um, I mean, is it a guarantee that if we get to net zero emissions that that's go that the, the climate is going to stabilize or temperature is going to decrease? I'm trying to figure out how we measure success. Because I feel like the targets keep moving every time we right. set a new target. Mm -hmm. And um, um, my context is this coming from Alberta, which has great capacity to store CO2 emissions underground. I've talked to uh, experts who suggest not only could we capture all of our own emissions, but we could capture all of Canada's and probably some of the world's. And so this is why I feel like, okay, this is an achievable target. But if you're not talking in terms of offsetting your emissions and you start talking in terms of temperature targets, then I'm wondering, does the does the, the goalposts just keep on moving as entrepreneurs and business owners and scientists and engineers come up with the solutions? So that's why I'm trying to understand what do they reasonably expect? Let's say we do get to net zero emissions. What what do they what do they think is going to happen in the, in the global climate? What is there some science on that, or so or what did they tell the policymakers will happen? Okay, great questions. So yes, they um, they they have simulation. You know, very complex computer simulations, of course. And one of the drivers is you know greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere for the the greenhouse effect. And you're you're right that even if you go and, and carefully read, you know what what they're saying, they're not guaranteeing. They're not saying, oh, if we got to net zero by 2050, then there's a hundred percent chance there wouldn't be any major problems. They they can't talk like that, and in fact, they don't want to. And and I think you're you know so on the one hand, it's correct scientifically because you don't know anything for certain. It's a very complex system, a global you know economic climate interaction. But also beyond that, that I think you're right that you know, and I hear my cynicism coming through. I do not think that this is purely just people interested in human welfare. Like, I think there's a lot of motivations of people who are interested for other reasons. And that, you know, they, that, that's why they like the expansion of government intervention in certain sectors. And so, yes, that no matter what happens, this is always going to be something for certain groups that allows them to keep having a pretext for continued intervention. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, yeah, I, I don't ever think it's going to be, okay, we did it, problem solved, let's move on now and stop talking about climate change. I don't think that would ever happen um, unless, you know, there's a public backlash against it from fatigue. So I, even on their own terms, though, you're, you're right, that they're just saying, you know, oh, there's tipping points, things like that. So they're saying, let's try to err on the side of caution. If we limit emissions to such and such, then we think we can contain the rise in global temperature. And that, because there's things like there's runaway effects that are you know modeled in the literature things that could happen that oh if, if warming gets above such and such 
and then the you know the polar ice caps start melting well then you know, you might hit a, a tipping point where even if we slammed on the brakes at that point you can't stop it because then there's you know uh, things that cause the plant to warm more so they have all those types of things in their models and they're just you know all of these th that's why for example they tried to mm -hmm. dial it back from two degrees celsius to 1.5 c is they're saying even with two degrees celsius there's some of these tipping points that we might cross over and then it would be really hard to come back so let's you know err on the side of caution and limit it to 1.5 c or, or try to contain it there so that's where they're coming from so you're right mm -hmm. even if we did hit net zero by 2050 they're not saying that guarantees everything would be fine they're just saying you know that that's to put us on a trajectory where we minimize the chance of some of these catastrophes. I, I want to talk about, I, I don't know if we can ever get back to sort of a rational way of discussing this issue, but I, I can tell you already, I've spoken with somebody who does also research in this area and they've already said that once we get to net zero by 2050, then we'll need to get to net negative mm -hmm. and we'll need to find technologies to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere, which is why I'm sort of wondering, what is it we're trying to achieve here? I mean, have we all come to a consensus that 350 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere is what we've got to maintain forever and all times? I just don't even know how to conceptualize that. We've never really had a target like that, I don't think, for for other types of of ambient air emissions, maybe we have, but but what is the like? What is the next step? What does net negative look like? Are you hearing others talk about that? Is that what we've got to brace ourselves for? Yeah, the quick answer is yes. And here again, there's a spectrum of, you know, you can go read like the peer-reviewed research. You can read like what do climate activists say? You know, there's more extreme groups that you know view humanity as a is a cancer upon the earth and, you know, anything that, that humans do, they, you know, just by definition, they don't like. So there's different groups and I mean, I'm not trying to brush everybody, you know, with the same stroke there, but I'm saying it depends which ones you, you look at. So clearly, yes, somewhere along that spectrum, you will see people arguing that, you know, even getting to net zero is not enough that we have to, that we already have pumped in way more CO2 mm -hmm. and other greenhouse gases than is, is healthy certainly for the continuation of human welfare, they would argue. And so that's why, yeah, it's, it's not enough just to stop adding to the problem. We got to start sucking out CO2 because where they're coming from is they, they want to say humans adapted to temperature in a certain range. Yes. It's always volatile and some, there's some hot years, some cool years, but you know, it bounces around a certain range and humans sort of evolved to adapt to that amount. And now by us dumping in so much greenhouse gas emissions, we're causing an upward trajectory in global temperatures. And so even if we just stop doing that, natural processes to reduce the CO2, for example, in the atmosphere, take a, at least decades, you know, to, to cut it down by a certain percentage. And so they're saying that's why we wouldn't just want to sit back and let that play out naturally. You'd want to go ahead and, and, and suck it out. So, so that's that's the argument. That's what they're they're saying and, and where they're coming from to say, because hmm. you're right, it is kind of odd. And I've seen some people make this argument to say, it was just a coincidence that the global temperature was the exact ideal as of 1860. And so that's why any warming by definition is bad. And it turns out that's not right. That even, you know, some of the major models used in this literature show that there's modest benefits on net from warming. Some of them show like up through 2050, at, at which point it flips, you know, just, just things like, okay, if it's warm, you know, certain crops can be planted in northern regions, you know, if the world gets worse. Certainly higher CO2 is good for 
agriculture, other things equal, right? I mean, in, in actual greenhouse ga- greenhouses, you know, they have much higher CO2 levels in there. So there's lots of things, or if it's longer summer season, then people can have recreational boating and stuff like, you know what I mean? So it's, it's some of the earlier literature just looked at the downsides and say, oh, like there's less snow skiing available if, if the winter is shorter, but not looking at the flip side and saying there's more, you know, skiing in the back of a boat on a, you know, water skiing if the summer's longer. So w- when people started more balanced analyses that look at the costs and benefits or the, or the, the goods and the bads, then it turned out that actually modest warming, hmm. many studies show on net was good. Now, everybody agrees you warm too much, then it flips to being bad on net. But I, again, so this, to answer, going back to your question, that it's modest benefits. And then at some point it flips and you're right. Some groups though, because they emphasize all the, the catastrophes that could happen and they have this sort of bias towards, you know, nature was pristine before man came along and messed it up. And so for them, they kind of want to go back to, you know, let's, let's remove the footprint of humans altogether. Does, does economics have anything to say about that optimization question about what is the optimal level of CO2 for humanity, animals, and plants? Because it is, I guess, different for plants than it is for, for human beings. And it was different for the dinosaurs than it, mm-hmm. than it, than it was for us. Uh, I, and, but I think you've made a, a good point. It's like we want to lock in what happened, what the temperature, what this ambient level of CO2 was prior to the onset, <clears throat> major onset of the industrial revolution. And I, I don't, I don't know if what the, what the, if that's the right target. And I don't know if economics has anything to say about how you would optimize that. Does it, or is that a scientific question? Okay. So great question. So I don't, I mean, ultimately, you know, this gets into a philosophical question and it's, you know, it's, a, there's a lot packed into that, that, you know, what, when we say, is it better? Is it just, you, you take everybody as a, as a voter and if, if it help, if some people do better and they approve it and others don't, and then what is, you know, or do you look at the people who benefit, you know, do, do they have some way of like signaling how much they benefit? You know I mean? It, it gets really complicated in, in general. It's hard to determine, you know, even not outside the climate change context, just in general, any government policy where there's winners and losers, it's actually really difficult to you know, come up with something that everybody could agree. Yeah, that's the procedure by which we'll we'll judge this. You know, Kenneth Arrow actually mm-hmm. had a famous paper, a result where he kind of showed with some basic requirements there there exists no optimal way of doing that. <laughs> In other words, people are different; they have subjective preferences, and ultimately, you know, there's going to be conflict if there's winners and losers. Um, but the only thing we know for certain is that if uh, we get too low entire humanity and all life on the planet dies, right? I mean, right, I don't right. know what that level, I think it's 150 parts per million where we can't, we, we, we just can't have a sustainable planet when it gets too low. I, 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 what I'm hearing you say is we kind of have by default locked into that nine, 1860 being the optimal level and all of our policy is centered around it. Is that, is that how we should be thinking about this as we go forward on the discussion? Do you think we've kind of, that the policymakers have, have accepted that that is the level because the 350.org mm-hmm. that's the reason why they named themselves that and they are, right, are, are right. really the, the preeminent um, environmental group that is really driving the the changes that we're that we're talking about and and some of the the more extreme language that we that we hear coming out of the policymakers analysis so there's there's two different things going on so um you're right that again not, not this isn't true of everyone but in general the people that are extreme environmental activists and who really, you know, stop all, you know, fossil fuels now, that kind of stuff, leave, leave it in the ground. 
yeah, they view human activity as, as, as disturbing the nature. And so, yes, for them, that's the natural baseline. In terms of standard economic analysis, no, that, you know, that just is a, just like you wouldn't say the amount of uh, houses that existed in 1860 is the optimal level. You know, there's, there's no reason to suppose mm. that. And so, you know, it's, you, you evaluate things in terms of human welfare, but it's, uh, there's, there's two separate questions. One is to say, you know, if you could just pick without any cost, what's the ideal target for global mean temperature, you could come up with a number. And again, that would be very controversial because, you know, people in Northern climates would want it to be warmer and people near the equator would want it to be cooler, other things equal. And, and you know, so there'd be some conflict there and there's no unambiguous way to, to solve that issue. But even if you could do that, that's not the same thing as saying that's what government policy should aim for. Because as you say, there's other competing goals too, like affordable energy. And so if it just turns out that, oh, to exploit, you know, uh, coal and natural gas and oil resources by, you know, which are very good for, for certain reasons for human welfare, that's going to make the temperatures higher than they otherwise would be. Well, then you would want to err on the side of going beyond, even if you did come up with what you thought the quote ideal temperature mm -hmm. target was, if, you know, you would still go a bit above that to be able to have cheaper energy. And so that's, you know, the sort of trip. And that's the kind of stuff that, again, that William Nordhaus, who by, is by no means a free market guy. He was a co-author with Paul Samuelson on his economics textbook that was very Keynesian. So William Nordhaus, he's for a carbon tax. So William Nordhaus is not some right winger, but his book that he had in 2008 was called A Question of Balance. And he was just trying to get the public to realize, yes, climate change in his mind was a danger, was a threat, and humans need to be careful. But you can't just slam on the brakes on emissions just like, you know, car accidents are bad. And if we really wanted to just cut down car accidents, we could just ban, you know, automobiles and, and trucks, period. But that would obviously be, you know, a cure worse than the disease. And likewise with this stuff, Nordhaus was just trying to get the public to realize there's trade-offs. And in his framework, it was a very modest, you know, carbon tax that just slightly reduced how much, you know, in his model by 2100, the globe would warm four degrees Celsius he recommended changing trajectory of emissions so it only warmed 3.5 C. And like I said, he did some work saying, oh, if we limited it to 2 C, that would be that would have such a bad effect because energy would be so expensive. It would be so bad for developing nations and their welfare to you know put in place the controls that would limit warming to 2 C that the harm to them from just reduced economic output would outweigh the extra gain and avoided climate change damage such that, you know, in his model, that it would be better if governments just did nothing. Can I just tell you yeah. that no one knows what you just said? Everybody <laughs> thinks, and I think maybe it's because they were released on the same, same weekend. Yeah. Everybody, I think, believes that William Nordhaus came out with a model that, that if followed, would endorse the notion right. that we could get to a 1.5 degree temperature limit. So I think we need to just explain a little bit more about how we approach this issue. I'm glad you sort of framed it, that he's not some mm -hmm. um, ultra conservative or ultra right. ultra free enterpriser when it, when it comes to his analysis. So, so tell me how you approach this issue of cost versus benefits, because I, I've done a couple of environmental studies. So when I was at the Fraser Institute as an intern, mm -hmm. I did environmental indicators for Canada and the US. And 
uh, th there are some emissions that you can say we can get to zero on. I mean, we got to zero lead emissions, and that was a pretty mm -hmm. good thing to do. And we reduced our CO our SO2 and our NOx. And so those are those are important measures. But it's it became it becomes a lot more tricky when it comes to to greenhouse gas emissions. And so I don't know if we can use exactly the same type of levers that we used in in those cases. May, may, maybe we can, and we'll talk a bit about that. But but I think this um, the other study I did was uh, eco prosperity when I was at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And what we found overwhelmingly is that most people, and we surveyed business owners, believe that you can have a strong environment and have a strong economy at the same time, and they don't have to be in conflict. But one one uh, comment that came in really stayed with me because it shows, I think, the all or nothing mindset of some people. The One person wrote back saying, um, if the planet warms and we all go extinct, that's bad for my business. And mm -hmm. so it's almost, it's almost like there is no environmental target that is too hard, too extreme, too aggressive uh, to try to achieve because otherwise the consequences extinction and we all die anyway and I, I that binary kind of thinking is is why we have such problems on this issue and it's why it's difficult to talk about cost benefit analysis because people just think that you're you're stacking up uh the profits of companies up against human life and i i want to try to reframe that before we get into the cost benefit analysis so that people talk, know that we're talking about it's human prosperity, human achievement, human life against human life. This is, I mean, the reason we care about economics is because we care about human prosperity and we care about being able to create the conditions for people to thrive. And I, I don't know that that comes through all that clearly when we just bring it down to numbers. So maybe, uh, maybe you can help to, to contextualize it for us. Okay, sure. Yeah, great, great uh, series of questions there and observations. So j just to underscore though, before I forget, and this is something that Ross McKittrick and I highlighted in, in the study for the Fraser Institute on this, that again, to show that the mismatch and you say like when, when I just talked about how Nord, Nordhaus showed and you said, nobody knows that Nordhaus himself is partly to blame, but you're right. So again, to remind people, same weekend in 2018, Nordhaus is announced as a co-recipient of the Nobel prize that year for his work on economics, climate change. And the UN releases its special report on 1.5 C in some newspaper accounts covered them in the same story, like the New York times, for example, and you're right from the you know the average reader would assume oh nordhaus's nobel prize winning work clearly endorses the you know what the un's report just came out and, and said this 1.5c target and they even interviewed nordhaus in this one piece and the person asked him something like um at, th at this point is there still time for humanity to you know achieve the 1.5c target and he just said nah at this point i th i think that you know it, it's too late for that one or something like that he didn't say, and thank goodness, because that's a ridiculous argument that would make us all ridiculously poor. He, you know what I mean? Because then you know, he's enjoying the adulation and the fact that he just won the Nobel Prize and being celebrated by people who are for the 1.5 C target. So you're right, because what people then interpret that to mean is, oh, my gosh, it's too late for humanity. Right. Be because if this right. is the limit and he says it's, we're already too far gone, then we need to take even more aggressive action. I think that's the series of events that people went through in their own mind. And right. it seems like there's series of events the IPCC went through in their policy, in their recommendation to policymakers. Thanks for, for connecting that. So we are going to talk more about what his findings actually were, mm -hmm. but, but put the, put the cost benefit right. discussion into context for us. Okay, sure. So you're, you're exactly right that it's, I, and I realize it does come off to the average person as if we're saying, oh yeah, 
all these people are going to die from heat stroke, but at least, uh, you know, Exxon's profits are going to be higher and their, their shareholders are going to get a bigger dividend check next quarter. And so that's kind of what, and that's not what, what we mean in economics when we do cost benefit analysis. Um, and so the, the models that, that try to assess like the damages from climate change, for example. So, so there is an issue that you, to be able to do cost versus benefits, you got to reduce things to a common denominator and they do use money because they're economists and that's the way they measure stuff. And a lot of, you know, we have market prices for a lot of the, you know, quote, economic impacts to be able, you know, that's already quoted in terms of money. And so that's the natural unit of measurement to then try to quantify the cost of climate change. And, and may I also say, and any other measure would be macabre. I mean, if you were saying, here's the number of bodies that would stack up right. if we get to an X level of warming versus the number of bodies that would stack up in the other circumstance, that 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 I think is 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 a bit too dire a way of looking at it. So we'll have to ultimately relate it back to to what kind of consequences it does have for mm -hmm. the level of, of harm it's going to cause to, to human beings. But let's first talk about it from a dollars and cents point of view, because I think, I think you're, you're quite right in, in, in under, in sort of framing it out that that's the most, that's just sort of the tool of economics that we use to, to do the analysis. So, um, so the, these model, like for example, the Obama administration, they had a big, um, panel a, a, a special working group they call interagency working group where they came up with estimates of the what's called the social cost of carbon to you know figure out oh and this year if we emit an extra ton of co2 what's the dollar impact in terms of the, what's called the negative externality so there they're trying to measure in dollar terms the extra harm imposed on humanity over the next 300 years or whatever it is i think that was when it was 300 years and then, and then they discount, you know, oh, so if it's going to hurt humans in the year 2100, the model in principle takes that into account and then discounts it by some discount mm. factor to get it into present dollars to be able to compare different policies, you know, because everything's got to be, you know, you got to come up with a metric. Um, and so they, and they picked three different leading models in the literature. One was Nordhaus's model. One was by this guy, Richard Toll. And I, and those are the two I'm more familiar with. And they, um, the other was the page model if people want to look that up and so they when they're looking at the costs of climate change you know to try to counterbalance that against the benefits of you know cheaper electricity and things they do have impacts on things beyond just what probably your listeners believe is narrowly economic issues so for example human mortality if because of climate change that people die earlier because of heat stroke or whatnot or other conditions that might be exacerbated by rising temperatures, that works its way into the analysis because that affects GDP, for example, right? If you if workers don't live as long, well, then that impacts GDP. So things do flow through the the lens of standard economic concepts. But I want to stress that the models aren't as crude, probably as as some people might think when they hear, "Oh, this is just measuring stuff in dollars and cents." That no, lots of impacts on human welfare are being pump through these and, and the models are different. So I don't want to like make blanket statements because they do have their nuances, but th there are, you know, they, they over time, they, they do recognize the people running these models and, you know, and, and publishing updates to them and so forth. They do go out to the literature and find assessments of like, how do we quantify in dollar terms, the loss of these fisheries, for example, right? So mm -hmm. if you think about it, like it's, if a bunch of fish in this area that, you know, normally are harvested, 
and then they because of acidification or whatnot now that's gone yes an, an environmentalist who doesn't care about the economy is just going to lament the loss of this you know beautiful aspect of nature but that does have an economic impact too if now you know you can't use sell that those fish on the market so you, you, that stuff does get into the analysis as you're talking you know what it strikes me is that mm -hmm. we, we don't really fully think through the cost of poverty in the same way and so and maybe that's where nordhaus is going because if you don't have access to reliable electricity and enough of it, then it becomes really difficult to develop out your economy. It, it becomes really difficult to produce enough food. If you can't produce enough food, you end up with harms associated with having to, to spend all of your time toiling rather than having kids go to school. And if your kids don't get educated, like there's a whole series of effects that happen once you can get reliable electricity into an environment that allows for the fl flourishing of prosperity. And I'm trying to, to think if there's, can you, can you just walk us through a little bit of, of that so that we understand that by creating an environment where we're making uh, reliable energy more expensive and we're prohibiting or preventing societies from developing. What are we giving up when we do that? Right. Great, great question. And th that's also interesting because generally speaking, a lot of the people that are um, very willing for the Canadian or the U.S. federal governments to really ramp up intervention in the energy sector to squeeze down emissions, a, much of the fallout from that, if governments around the world were to follow those policies to be able to hit these global targets, would be the fact that people in developing nations would would see their standard of living stunted, right? So it's it, it wouldn't so much make Canadians have their standard of living go down 30%, especially for the more modest targets. But what it would mean is like people in, in um, India or China or regions of Africa maybe their children's standard of living would be 50% lower than it hmm. otherwise would have been, right? And so, I mean, there are still regions in the world where people burn, you know, animal dung in their house for heat. And so in terms of just conventional, you know, pollution and being bad for your lungs, if, if people like in a village that's doing that switch to getting hooked up to a coal-fired power plant, you know, their, their breathing is going to be a lot better in terms of the atmospheric pollution, even though, you know, in the standard climate change debate, oh, a coal-fired power plant is horrendous. And that's the kind of thing we got to stop doing. So you're exactly right that I think so, a lot of the people in the so-called first world nations, we already benefit from our industrial era. We already did pump a bunch of stuff into the atmosphere to raise our standard of living. And now we're going to then say the rest of the world, oh, you can't copy us because that would make the you know temperature too too hot. And so there's you know, that's part of the disagreements like with the Paris Climate Agreement and the different national quotas and so forth that the developing nations, yeah, to, to catch up to us, need affordable energy. And for the next few decades, at least, that means relying on fossil fuels. But does it also have that other side of it is, well, that's why we've got to bring down the standard of living in those rich countries because because i'm trying to figure this out we used to when i was growing up we used to really talk a lot about poverty alleviation around the world i think that mm. the uh, uh it was the the concert that took place during the ethiopian uh, right. food crisis that was really kind of foundational for my thinking about what we needed to do to assist the, the the standard of living in in other parts of the world and yet that doesn't seem to factor into it we 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 we, we seem to uh, not be having an objective and we should 
we should have an objective that we, we want everyone in the world to have the same quality of life and standard of living and opportunities as as we're able to enjoy in the wealthier countries. And is is that does that factor into um, into any of the IPCC analysis, or is that why you have to go one step further and talk about what William Nordhaus is talking about? Okay, so yeah, a few points here in response. So you're you're right. When when I you know I was a child of the '80s, and yeah, the We Are the World concert and everything you know was was couched in terms of that. And one of the sort of unsung developments is in the last you know, 15, 20 years, there has been a very rapid and extensive decline in global poverty, largely because of people rising standards of living in, in China and India and through generally market-based reforms, right? So in other words, if under Chairman Mao, China was so awful that then even moving back towards you know more of a free enterprise system that allowed such huge growth in their standards of living. And so it, it is interesting that you would think if people who in the 80s were primarily concerned with global poverty would be running victory laps and, and praising capitalism or at least movements towards international trade. And obviously that's not what they do. It's, it's, it's anything, it's the opposite. Now it's capitalism is destroying the world um, and an ecosystem. So th there is that element that it does make you wonder, you know, what's really driving some of the some of this rhetoric that it seems like it's not you know the, the goals they're they're listing once they get achieved if it's not the way they want it they just move on to something else to talk about um you're you're right so so nordhaus's model for example when it does have balance these costs and benefits yes you know just standard economic growth looking at um the benefits of of people you know achieving higher standards of living that stuff is all rolled into it and that's why even though he takes very seriously, you know, the, the concerns from physical scientists about, hey, the more emissions we have, other things equal, that raises temperatures and look at all the impacts that's going to have. He actually, his, his recommendations don't have us averting that much of the total warming, at least by the year 2100, precisely for that reason. Because he says, no, if we, if we are too aggressive on clamping down, then all these millions mm. of people around the world lose out and just in terms of st their standard of living is, is, is lower. So the, the UN reports do contain that information, right? So that, you know, the, I, I haven't read carefully the sixth assessment report, but the fifth assessment report, you know, they, they have all that stuff in there. And that's what I'm saying is you could not justify these extreme policies by pointing to the UN's own literature. Cause it, it just doesn't, you can't, you can't do it. it but instead, like for example, the, the special report in 2018, the 1.5 C target one, it didn't say governments should do this. It just said, if governments were to do this, here's how you would do it. Hmm. Right. Because they can't, they even have some, you know, sections in there talking about how, you know, some people do conventional cost benefit. We're not doing that here. Instead, what we're doing is we're taking the goal as given politically, and then we're going to talk about how to minimize the cost of achieving it. So it sounds like they're doing cost, but they're actually not. And they're quite explicit that they're not, because again, it would fail. You, you can't justify it that way. Wow. So this is, I think this is really Im important for people to understand this because um, I guess what would, I don't know if you can answer this question because you're, you're not William Nordhaus, but using his work, if he was drafting the advice to policymakers out of the analysis that he has done, mm -hmm. how would he frame it for them? How how would he contextualize what our target should be and what we should be doing about emissions and what we should be doing about, you've already mentioned the temperature target, mm -hmm. um, that as, if, as I understand it from what you said, 
business as normal in his analysis would get us to four degree temperature increase. We can do some measures to get that increase to only 3.5, but it becomes devastating to the developing nations if we go less than that. Am I, am I, am I, am I in the right ballpark of where, of where, of what his true analysis was? Yeah, exactly right. Yep. So he's saying if governments did nothing, he thinks by 2100, the world would have warmed about four degrees Celsius, again, relative to like 1860. With his optimal carbon tax, and I'll talk more in a minute about what that means, then it would warm to only about 3.5 C. If if governments did more to keep warming lower than that, the net benefits to humanity shrink and shrink and shrink. And then mm -hmm. if, if they ratchet all the way down in his model, just even 2 C of warming, then it that's so bad that's so far beyond the point that they should have done that you know that in terms that's way too aggressive of a climate change move that the harm to humanity is worse than what would have happened if they just let let it rip and let it go to four C. Right? Let's talk about okay now let's I don't I don't want to delve too much into sort of the doom and gloom because I feel mm. like the other side does that too much but I think we do need to to balance this out what are the what is that worst case scenario if we so that's the, the, the frustrating part about the conversation is that we have gone so far down the track of thinking that what is being put out there is 1.5 as the target is optimal that it's, it might be hard for people to wrap their head around <laughs> any mm -hmm. other target. But let's let's see if we can understand a little bit about what Nordhaus's work says a, a two degree target would do. What, what would in the extreme, what are the kind of things he thinks would happen? OK, sure. So just to give you the specific numbers, so he's he's quantifying things again he he looks at the at the literature and they make assessments of impacts on various sectors and things like here's what would happen with maritime shipping here's what would happen with fisheries here's what would happen with da -da 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 -da, with agriculture right so those things are all affected and he has lots of different literature that gets boiled down and put into into these somewhat simplistic models obviously you're having a simulation of the global economic climate system over 300 years there's a lot you, you got to leave out to be able to do that. But I'm just looking at the, the, our, our study here. So he was saying under a baseline of no controls, you know, you have uh, $134 trillion in present value terms of climate change damage. Okay. So he's saying, you know, assessing what would happen. So that's, that's, and again, that's, that's present value terms. So they're looking out over a long time horizon in the future, climate change damage is, is higher, but we discount it to today. And he's saying 134 trillion if they had his optimal carbon tax where all the governments around the world put in the right trajectory of, you know, every year they slightly increase the tax on carbon dioxide emissions, then it limits climate change damage to about 85 trillion. Mm -hmm. But then there's 20 trillion dollars in economic compliance. OK, so the climate change damage drops about 50 trillion, again, in present value terms. But now economic growth in general is 20 trillion less than it otherwise would have been again present value terms with a long time horizon so that means on net that his optimal policy makes humanity 30 trillion dollars richer if that's the way you want to think right because it reduces climate change damage by about 50 trillion but then there's the economic cost of 20 trillion so once again what 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 would be the optimal carbon tax because in canada we've got a government that is proposing that we go to $170 per ton by 2030, which is only nine short years, how does that compare with what Nordhaus would say would be the optimal tax? So uh, 
Nordhaus is in line with you know the, the standard literature on this stuff. Um, in our study, we showed that the Biden administration, for example, just recently updated as of February 2021, its EPA updated estimates. So they use Nordhaus's model as well as two other ones. And they're saying by 2030, using a 3% discount rate because it matters how you discount future costs and benefits, it would be about $62 a ton. Okay. And so some of the mismatch there might be, you know, US versus Canada, but obviously that's not a huge difference one way or the other. So you're, you're right. Like some of these numbers that are really large show that this is not following the literature. Another way, Danielle, to mm-hmm. show the gap, we Ross McKittrick and I pointed this out in our study, the, the UN's own 2018 special report on 1.5C targets said if we were to achieve, if humanity were to achieve this 1.5C target, the implicit social cost of carbon, like how much a carbon tax would have to be to achieve these things, could range anywhere up to $5,500 a ton. Oh my okay, goodness. So, so again, I'm just, I'm trying to get people to see the, the mis- and again, that, that's not like the Heritage Foundation. That's not what the Fraser Institute said. That's the IPCC's own, you know, um, documents and then other groups that were very sympathetic to it you know, that were for this stuff. So it's again showing now if people wonder, well, how could they do this? It's because what they're saying is that the the framing is they're saying there's unacceptable catastrophic risks, potential outcomes, if we allow more than 1.5 C warming. And so that just rules that out. So humanity needs to do whatever it takes to limit warming. And so they throw cost benefit out the window, even though in most scenarios, you're not going to see those catastrophic outcomes. Here's what I don't understand is that I, I, I'm not quite sure how they think that we are going to achieve this. In some ways, maybe, you know, it's interesting to me because on the one hand, and we'll get into some of the ideology behind the Green New Deal in the US or the Leap Manifesto here. In some ways, the the, the, the people who seem to hate the way our economy works and free enterprise and capitalism, the, the ones who hate it the most seem to be thinking that it's going to be the free free enterprise that bails us out because the only way that you can continue to grow and meet the level of population growth that we have and ensure prosperity increases is entrepreneurship and people coming up with new innovation and people finding new inventions and all of that happens in the world of a free enterprise there's almost a real mismatch isn't it i mean in some ways it's almost as if those who hate capitalism the most really are the ones who have the most confidence that entrepreneurs will figure this out. Am I, am I overthinking that? But it, it seems no, like that can be the no, only you're not, answer. You're not overthinking. And this also ties in when you were talking earlier about some of the work you had done when you were younger with, you know, socks emissions and things like that, that, um, yeah, what the, the people who are for very aggressive climate targets, what they'll say is, oh, don't listen to, people like Nordhaus certainly don't listen to people like, you know, this Robert Murphy guy, because they're going to scare you into thinking, oh, if we limit it, if we put in measures that limit emissions, or we try to move to net zero by 2050, that the economy is going to crash and everyone's going to be out of work and things like that. And and gasoline will be too expensive. Don't worry. In the past, you know, those big businesses all warned about stuff and said, we can't comply. And we went ahead and passed those measures and it was fine because people innovate. And they'll say, you know, there's going to be, if we just set this as a target as a goal and we know we're doing this then um you know they'll come up with innovations in battery storage they'll come up with innovations in hydrogen cars and so you're right in other words if we were to try to go to net zero emissions next thursday 
it really would be a disaster. But they're saying, look at all the innovate, look at the strides that were made in solar and wind technology and how much more cheaply we can produce per kilowatt hour in those areas than we could 10 years ago even. And so you, in order for these things to work where they're even showing on paper, how could it be possible to achieve net zero by a certain thing without, you know, really jeopardizing the standard of living that Canadians are accustomed to, they have to build in a bunch of very optimistic hmm. assumptions about technological innovation. And so maybe those are true, but but you're right. There is a sort of irony that it, it the, the debate moved from it. It used to be, like you say, they call the the people, the skeptics, climate deniers and so on. And now it's guys like me are just quoting their own literature and they're saying, oh yeah, but there's so much those models leave out. You know, the, the innovation is going to be so much better than Nordhaus predicts in his model, for example. So that's kind of the way they deal with the sorts of points I'm bringing up is they say, you know, Nordhaus's model is way too pessimistic. Innovations in, in battery storage and carbon capture and so forth are going to be a lot better than Nordhaus thinks. I, and I suppose... I mean, I'm I'm really optimistic about entrepreneurship and innovation. And I, I look at, for instance, funny, I, when you go and binge watch old Netflix shows from the 2008, 2009 era, everybody's talking about this brand new invention, an iPhone, an iPad, yeah. and how amazing it is. And it's so funny to think, gosh, that was 10, 12 years ago that that was mm -hmm. such an amazing innovation. But there's two things I'd say about it. One is that every technological innovation brings with it a whole bunch of additional need for energy and all of the products that fossil fuels create from petrochemicals. And so there's almost a bit of a disconnect there in thinking innovation is the answer. As someone has often, often said to me, uh, you can't make a wind turbine with wind turbine because it has concrete, mm -hmm. <laughs> it has fiberglass and it has, and it has steel and you can't make solar panels as well with a solar panel because it requires the, uh, the crystalline silicon, which is made from coal fired plants in China. And so there's, there's sort of a surreal, uh, almost uh, in disingenuous argument that we're having where there's this notion that certain types of new energy don't use fossil fuel production at all. And yet we haven't developed the innovation to get away from the fossil fuel production in in uh, in what we're supposed to be transforming to. And I, I guess I'm wondering how we break through on this discussion, because it, it seems like with every passing IPCC report, we're getting further away from what the academics are saying, further away from what the economists are saying, if even William Nordhaus has been mischaracterized that way. And how do, how do we bridge the divide back to some kind of rational analysis of this? Is there, what what, what do you think is the most powerful argument? So, um, okay, so great points there. And, and you're right, it's, let me just mention, so for people a lot of times will ask me, you know, I'll, I'll go through and point out the potential problems. And by the way, what, even as as bad as it would be to pursue, for example, a 1.5 C target, um, if the whole world were to do it in a systematic, coherent fashion, like level, you know, levying a carbon tax that was just really high. Um, and then that answers your earlier question. You said, what would William Nordhaus recommend? That's what his recommendation. He wants all the governments of the world to implement a carbon tax and let the market figure out the optimal level of emissions. So he's going hmm. back even one further. So he's not going to control temperature. He's not even saying here's the amount of emissions to allow. Because he says it depends, you know, there, there's benefits and let the market decide that. Instead, we just correct for the negative externality by putting on a carbon tax and then let the market determine the amount of it. Just like the market determines how many cars are made or how many houses, you know, we just got to get the prices right. That's that's the framework where he comes from. Um, but you're you're right. So to 
um, acknowledge these things, uh, there's a certain amount of innovation. And so I can point these problems out. And so what would be even worse than all the governments doing, you know, too high of a carbon tax is certain governments doing a lot of draconian things and other governments doing nothing. So what really doesn't make sense, for example, is the Canadian government to move to a net zero by 2050 while China keeps installing new coal-fired power plants every week. That would really be crazy, right? But that's exactly that, what's happening. <laughs> right, right. So sometimes when I make points like that, some people get frustrated. And they say, oh, so you don't, you know, you just, we're just going to hope the climate change isn't a big thing. And there, there's lots of different um, groups working on various things that we could do. So like you're saying, there's, you know, carbon capture, there's ways of, you know, people have, people can go to YouTube and look at this. People have like just giant fans that run air through them and they just literally extract the carbon just from, you know, the, the ambient air. Right. And so it's right now it's too expensive. There's cheaper ways to reduce how much CO2 is in the atmosphere than doing it that way. But, but we know physically how to do it to literally just suck CO2 right out of the atmosphere if we had to. Um, Freeman Dyson, people might know him. He was this astrophysicist that was kind of a quirky guy. He's famous for the, what's called the Dyson sphere idea. But anyway, he got into this area and he was coming up with all sorts of ideas. Like you could genetically modify trees so that they mm -hmm. absorb more CO2 and then we, you know, bury it underground. And think you could have, you know, um, sort of dropping minerals in certain regions of the ocean to try to spawn algae growth that would then, you know, suck in more CO2. So there's all sorts of things humans could do you could do stuff like pump certain things into the atmosphere that reflect sunlight. And you could do that for 10 years just to buy us 10 years of breathing room while other things kick in. You know what I mean? There's because like when Mount Pinatubo erupted, global temperatures dropped, right? Because of all the, you know, the particulates in the air would reflect the sunlight. So people are working on all this stuff. It was summarized in the book, Daniel. If you, if you, the, the Freakonomics oh, guy, yeah. the Steve Levitt, Steve Levitt, they came out with Super Freakonomics, which was the sequel to that. And they had a whole chapter on climate change and all the different stuff people were doing where they could probably, quote, solve global warming for like $50 billion as opposed to, you know, the trillions that reducing, you know, fossil fuels through carbon taxes would cost. And it was interesting to see the reaction to that. You would think the people that were really concerned about climate change would say, oh, thank goodness. There's a, they were outraged. They, they attacked with the vitriol you would not imagine. Steve Levitt and Dubner, who was his co-author in that, because they were saying, oh, you're telling humanity that we don't need to worry about this because there's a cheap technological fix. And so that, you know, they just, so again, this is what I'm saying. I don't believe a lot of these extreme actors when they say this is all to save our grandchildren, because when someone comes up, last, I know I'm rambling here, Danielle. No, you know, it's you really would think important because I, everybody I have should this... support nuclear power, right? Yes. That's, and yet, no, the extreme environmentalists, not at all. Absolutely not. Nuclear is off the table. And so it leads me to think, okay, then this really isn't about averting climate change. This is something else. Well, and I want to talk to you about what that is, because I, I, I've literally just had that conversation in the last week, because I'm trying to come up with some of the technological arguments or the technology arguments to counter what some of the extreme environmental groups are saying. They've now launched a campaign, 500 environmental groups signed on to a letter telling US Congress and the Canadian government not to support carbon capture utilization and storage, which to me seems like such an obvious techno technological solution. And the, the person I was speaking with said, but this isn't about finding the solution. It's, you, you can put the technical arguments forward, we could even achieve it, and it would shift to something else because there's an, an ideology underlying it. So I do want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. But before leaving the misconceptions we have about William Nordhaus, one of the other things that I understood was that 
he, um, if, if a nation imposes a carbon tax, doesn't he also talk about border transfer pricing? Maybe I'm using our border adjustment charges. Maybe I'm using the wrong language. But if we're going to then import goods that don't have a carbon tax on them, if we're going to try to create some kind of parity, don't, don't we have to add some kind of, of additional import tax to level the playing field? Is, is that part of, of his analysis as well? Okay, so his baseline analysis, and when I was just throwing out numbers before about the optimal, there he was just doing a global, you know, harmonized, all the governments of the world do the, the exact right policy, you know, according to his lights. Um, and then he does um, get into, oh, what happens if compliance is not 100%? You know, what if only 80% of the emissions are covered by, you know, the jurisdiction of my, and the costs go up rapidly hmm. when that happens. Um, and, and so again, I'm, I'm saying that even these numbers like to show the potential benefits of doing these things, once a few governments don't do it consistently, or just like the Trump administration temporarily pulling out of Paris and then, you know, Biden going back in that sort of thing messes it up, right? Like you have to do it perfectly or else, you know, you lose a lot of the alleged benefits. Um, so you're right. I'm off the top of my head. I don't know if Nordhaus mm -hmm spends a lot on the border adjustments, but certainly in the economics of climate change literature, they do talk about that, that, okay, what if, you know, Europe and Canada and the U.S. put in place a cap and trade or a carbon tax, but some other areas don't have it, isn't that going to put our domestic industries at a huge competitive disadvantage? And so the way they deal with that is, yes, they have mm -hmm. carbon, you know, tariff adjustments at the border so that if, if goods are coming in from a place that doesn't have a carbon tax, then you build in you know, an extra surcharge on that to account for the carbon content so that you're not, because what you don't want to have happen is you put in a carbon tax on your stuff. And so then your people just end up importing goods from overseas where there isn't a carbon tax because now it's cheaper to make it over there. And so global emissions go up, if anything, and all you're doing is putting your people out of work. So they, they do make those adjustments, but then that somewhat defeats the point of the domestic carbon tax. Right, because now, oh, if Canada wants to export tar sands to somewhere else, they they get a you know they get a rebate at the border, you know, to make it so they're still competitive with you know the rest of the world, and so that that doesn't achieve as much in terms of the environmental objective. So again, it's it's this trade off that it, if you're gonna make humanity not use the most available convenient energy sources, that's gonna have an economic impact. And so if only one group of people is doing that and everyone else is using the real affordable energy, well, there's going to be a huge mismatch. And so, you know, that's part of what they grapple with. I, I know that one of my listeners is going to send me a note if I don't tell you that we t we we call them oil sands in Alberta rather oh, than right, tar right, sands. Right. I know that they, they, they've been tagged as tar sands. Even our own premier used to call them that. Well, just to be sorry, I, I was I didn't want to do that. I was trying to be ironic with this. Oh, I thing. see. Just like they call it dirty energy. Like so that's what I was, yeah. Understood. Yeah. So I guess I guess here's the challenge that we have then is that you're talking about um all of the things that Nordhaus got a Nobel Prize for being the exact opposite of what we're doing in Canada. We're we're not harmonizing with the rest of the world. We are setting a rate that's almost three times higher that than what, what is going to be um, uh, recommended as the optimal. I don't even know actually what number of countries in the world are following our track. It seems like we're going first. And yet we're only responsible for, what are the latest stats? 1.6% of global emissions. And so it, it puts us in that position where uh, we're going to make our goods 
less competitive relative to the rest of the world. And then we're going to have to import from China, which continues to uh, build out coal-fired plants to make all the products that we buy. This, this doesn't sound like there's much um, economic rationality behind it. So what is behind it? If you say that there's that there's something beyond the technological fix and something beyond the economic optimal analysis, what what should we be looking at as a way of countering these arguments? Is is does this go beyond economics? What what is the Green New Deal about? What is what is the the Leap Manifesto about? Yeah, great questions. And um, and you're right. So it's it is a multi pronged problem. That yes, not only are you not supposed to just impose piecemeal carbon taxes while the rest of the world does nothing, but to set it at a rate that's much higher than what the conventional estimates are of the, you know, the, the so-called negative externality, again, makes no economic sense, even on its own terms. Um, and I also want to stress to your listeners, it's not merely an issue. What it's, it's not just saying like, Oh, we're walking along and I'm going to throw my candy wrapper on the ground. And then someone says, Hey, you shouldn't litter. And I say, Oh, but look at a thousand other people have already done it. So I'm going to do it. It's worse than that. Or it, because if Canada, you know, clamps down and reduces the amount of gasoline it uses, then that makes the world price of oil lower. And mm. so that means people in China and India and Russia or wherever, they're going to drive more than they otherwise would. So it would be like if by you not putting the, the candy wrapper down for some reason that made other people get paid money if they were to litter more. So it's really not doing anything for the absolute amount of litter. So I want to be clear. It's not merely that we're saying, oh, it's a collective problem. And if Canada is just a small percentage, we can't change. It's that if, if Canada acts unilaterally, then it gives an incentive for other people to do more than they more emissions than they otherwise mm -hmm. would have. So you're really not altering global temperature all that much. Um, so in terms of just to give more examples. So we mentioned the nuclear thing that you would think the people who really thought we have 12 years to act or we're all dead or our children are doomed, you would think they would be the biggest proponents of nuclear power, but they're not by any stretch. Um, another example, when people talk about renewable energy sources, they mean solar and wind. They don't mean hydro, even mm -hmm. though that's also renewable. And, and so you say, well, what's the common element in all this stuff? It's if something would actually work and is profitable, they don't like it. Mm -hmm. It has to be something that's really inconvenient for humans to use and makes no sense economically. And that's the thing they like. And so to me, I think part of what's going on is a lot of the people who are drawn to the extreme environmental movement and then, you know, latch on to 350 or, uh, you know, 1.5 C targets and so on. It's, they don't like capitalism. They don't like mm -hmm. consumerism. And so it, to them, you know, it's th that by itself, like, like they think Canadians and American, you know, people in the United States use too much energy period. And so it's, it's not, you know, if there were a technological fix, if someone comes along with a way, that, oh, just by doing such and such, we can suck CO2 out of the air so we can keep using, you know, gas guzzling SUVs. Well, they don't like that because they think people should all be riding the trains at best. So, um, you know, that's, I think that's part of, and I'm not speculating. You can go read, like you say, the Green New Deal or some of the people involved with the UN, you know, talking about the, the Great Reset or the, this, and you know, they're, they're talking about how we need to take this opportunity to fundamentally transform the global financial economic system, right? I'm not putting words in their mouth. You can find people saying this openly. And so, you know, in their mind, it's not sinister. They're saying, oh, our practices right now are unsustainable. So let's go ahead and do this. But like the Green New Deal, for example, you look at that language, it spends very little time on 
the problems of CO2 concentration. It talks all about, you know, we need to restore equity between male and the female pay gap and looking at indigenous culture. It, it gets into all sorts of standard left-wing progressive social causes that are all going to be helped by the Green New Deal. And so again, so, it's, it, it shows you that this really is just a matter of achieving political goals that they had already, and but they can kind of bring it in under the climate change lens. So, so talk to me a bit about how they make that connection, because I think we saw a bit of a sneak peek about what that world looks like when we went through the, the last 18 months of COVID. I mean, it's quite shocking when you look at the fact that our governments spent $600 billion, rather $600 billion to debt in, in Canada, which is more or equivalent to all the debt added by all previous administrations since our, our founding. And so there does seem to be this notion, I, I think in the in a traditional way of looking at economics is that you needed to have wealth creators, you needed to have entrepreneurs come up with interesting ideas, bring together investors, create a business, hire people, and it would pay multiple levels of taxes. You'd ultimately, if you were profitable, you'd pay corporate taxes, you'd be paying uh, income taxes for the workers that you were able to hire. There'd be GST or some sort of sales tax on the sales. And that's how money got generated for government. Therefore, it begins with an entrepreneurial activity. It begins with free enterprise. But this new way of looking at things with modern monetary theory doesn't seem to look at the starting point of wealth creation being that entrepreneurial activity. So where does the money come from? Right. So, um, for example, the green new deal, you know, when it first was rolled out, they were just throwing out all sorts of big projections and for your, I'm sure your listeners know that, but the, they're harkening back to the original new deal under the Franklin Roosevelt administration in the thirties, where, you know, the height of the great depression, the U S government greatly expanded its footprint in the U.S. economy, you know, doing all sorts of spending on infrastructure, parks, forests, putting people to work, all sorts of expansions and federal assistance. And so that's what they're saying. Oh, we need now another new deal, meaning, you know, huge explosion in federal spending on various projects, but now with a green twist to it, you know, to pr promote uh, things that are environmentally conscious. And so, um, in the beginning, you know, with some of these numbers of things they were throwing out there, it was just astronomical, like in the several trillions of dollars per line item, depending on which one you're talking about. And so, of course, the response of and, and they were, again, trying to justify all these things by saying not in conventional cost benefit, but by saying, oh, look at, you know, we we got to repair infrastructure. If we spend more on schools, that will lower the achievement gap you know, between black and white students. And they, you know, I mean, it's all these standard things that are, you know, part of the progressive left agenda for generations all gets rolled into, you know, oh, let's do this stuff with a green lens on it. Um, you know, refitting insulation and making homes and businesses energy efficient. And so they come with these huge price tags of how much this, and I think part of it is just, there's a lack of economic understanding nowadays. And they would try to flip it so instead of this being a huge cost that we have to now go find the benefit to see if it's worth it, instead, they would say, no, the mere expenditure, that's a good thing. That's good for the economy if the government's spending a bunch of money because it puts people to work. And then when you say, well, how do you pay for it? Mm -hmm. As you say, in the U.S. context in particular, they've got this thing called modern monetary theory or MMT, where they say, oh, you know, ever since at least, you know, the, the U.S. stopped uh, redeeming dollars for gold, all the governments of the world are 
issuing what's called fiat money, where the money, you know, the, the Bank of Canada or the U.S. Federal Reserve, they don't owe you anything. You go up and give them a hundred dollar bill and say, what am I entitled to? They say, give you 10 tens. You want that? But it's not that they owe you gold or anything like that. And so there's no legal constraint on how much money the Federal Reserve can create. And so the MMT argument is simply, instead of saying, how are we going to pay for the Green New Deal? Instead, we should say, at worst, oh, if we spend too much on the Green New Deal, that might make price inflation higher than our objective. But it's not a technical problem. You know, there's no problem in coming up with the dollars because the Fed can just create them electronically. But inflation does have an ultimate impact, doesn't it? I mean, I guess I grew up learning about the Weimar Republic and hyperinflation. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who went to uh, Zimbabwe and came back with a trillion dollar bill or something right, along right. those lines. I've watched in Venezuela as they've gone through their collapse and people as they get paid are scurrying to try to turn it into Bitcoin so that they have some value that, that will hold. And so it, it does seem to me that it that you can destroy the value of your currency. Why is it that modern industrialized countries think it's not going to happen to me? It's going to be different this time. Yeah, it's a great question. And so, yeah, that, that I've been writing a lot, you know, trying to push back against the MMT narrative. So there's a few things. So st strictly speaking, the MMT camp, especially, you know, they have some professional economists in their ranks. Um, people like Stephanie Kelton, for example, uh, who was an advisor to the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, you know, she has a book that recently came out and it's, you know, they, they will acknowledge that, look, at, we're not saying the government can just spend trillions and trillions of dollars and nothing bad ever will happen. We're just saying, stop framing it in terms of how are we going to pay for it? Like, like as if the U S government is just a big corporation and we have revenues and we have a budget, we get that. No, you can just create dollars. And so they're saying the real constraint is with real resources. So as long as there's slack in the system, mm. we can go ahead and try to employ those resources. Now, I think they're being very coy though, because they're leading people to believe that, oh, okay, so we do have this huge free lunch that's available and we can finance the Green New Deal or you know, send a mission to Mars or whatever. And that won't have any bad consequences. When, as you say, I, I think you know, it, it's clear. Like to me, it's pretty straightforward. If real resources get siphoned out of the private sector and spent on government projects, then that makes us poorer because other things equal, I think the private sector is better at allocating resources than the political sector. And so there's necessarily that opportunity cost, but they're, I think, leading people to believe that, you know, that there isn't this trade-off or at least let's keep spending the money until we see something bad happen until we see, you know, the inflation, the, the whites in its eyes, let's not, you know, let's not be timid because we're worried about hyperinflation. Let's wait till it's here. And in, in mm -hmm. fairness, I should say, I think because so many people on the right, I, I don't know how much in Canada, this is true, but in the United States for sure, a lot of political conservatives and libertarians ever since the 2008 crisis, when the Fed started doing QE, were warning about, and you know, debasing the currency or inflation, and that didn't happen for 10 years. So mm -hmm. now, actually, we are seeing, even according to the government's own numbers, you know, the highest inflation numbers in 30 years, depending on which metric you're looking at. But for a while, inflation was very tame, at least according to the official measures, even though people on the right were saying Ben Bernanke was a crazy, you know, inflation man. And we're, and we're saying, oh, we're going to be Zimbabwe. And then that hasn't happened so far. So I think some on the right with their rhetoric did sort of come off like chicken littles. But again, that doesn't mean, therefore, inflation isn't a problem. It just means some of the people on the right, perhaps, you know, were a bit 
exaggerated in the immediacy of the threat. But certainly paying for the Green New Deal just by running the printing press is a recipe for disaster as far as I'm concerned. Well, this is what I I, I don't understand about what, how this is going to work because there are subnational levels of government. And so mm-hmm. even if you look at the argument that the Federal Reserve or in our case, Bank of Canada, we, we can produce as much dollars as we need to for our mm-hmm. federal level of government. As far as I can see, provincial and state levels of government, municipal levels of government, they still have to borrow at market rates and pay interest on their borrowing. And so there is a there is a, a real cost associated with that. When you pay finance charges, it kind of eats in to the ability to pay for anything else. And I, I don't know, maybe our NASA, our national governments aren't paying interest payments at the at the at the at the rate that um that, that we that the rest of us have to experience. I mean businesses are Rates sometimes in the order of eight, nine, or ten percent. Can only imagine what will happen if inflation starts taking over and interest rates go up. But that doesn't seem to factor into it at all. And I'm I'm still not sure I entirely understand why. Because interest is sort of a, a I thought part and parcel of borrowing. Is there is there some disconnect that happens in monetary theory, modern monetary theory? Okay, yeah, so great question. Um, I I think what they would say, and again, they they don't all say. They're not all saying identically the same things, but among prominent MMT folks, I think one of the ideas going around is they they do think that it's certainly for at least government bonds that the central bank could intervene and buy those to, to suppress interest rates. Hmm. So that so that yes, if in if in Canada things that are traditionally handled at the provincial level or the US, you know, things that traditionally state governments administer, if there were a province or a US state that because they can't themselves print dollars, you know, they'll run into budget trouble and, oh, they, you know, oh, we're doing all this infrastructure spending and spending for, you know, green projects to install wind turbines and da, da, da. great stuff. Um, but, ah, oh, shoot, you know, we just the tax revenue is not here and we're running huge deficits. We got to float these bonds that the Fed would come in and just mm-hmm. monetize that in order to keep, you know, their interest rate down. Because, yes, I, I think they do have the sense that, interest really is this artificial, like it, it, it doesn't correspond to something real, like, you know, wages, yes, human labors, you know, there's a disutility from labor. Maybe they would agree that, you know, certain minerals should have a cost, certain farmlands to allocate, but interest, I think, at least to some of these writers in this tradition is sort of this artificial constraint that doesn't correspond to anything real. There's nothing in nature about why we can't produce more. If, if we're not producing something just because the interest cost would be too much, I think they think that's kind of a bogus thing. We can just print the money and you know let, let's suppress the interest rate and that that's not going to have any harmful consequences. So I disagree with all that. I think interest does relate to, you know, present versus future satisfactions and it helps regulate things over time. And so if you make the interest rate artificially low, that screws things up too, just like if you made the price of oil too low, that would cause problems. So I, I think they're just wrong in the economics. But but to answer your question, I think that's what they would say is this the Bank of Canada could intervene and buy the mm. bonds of provincial governments if it had to. It's a very odd, um, it's almost incongruous though to put all of these thoughts together because on the one hand, uh, constraints are what cause a rationalization of resources. And and that's part of what economics is all about is how do you, how do you end up seeing the uh, resources put to their highest use. So if you take away those constraints, it seems like that works counter to what the Green New Deal wants. They want us to consume less. They want to put an artificial constraint on the price of 
fossil fuels, but at the same moment, they're talking about guaranteed annual incomes and a mm -hmm. lot of stimulus spending, which would then, as long as you are able to spend that on things that people are able to produce, that, that would have the effect of creating more consumption. So I don't even know if these two ideas, even though they're contained in the same document, I don't know if they have really uh, compatible ends. And uh, and so that's why it's, it's, it's uh, I don't know what the end game is. Maybe as you're talking, I was thinking, well, Kane said in the long run, we're all dead. I suppose maybe that's what they're thinking when the chickens come home to roost here. The ones who are making the decisions today are not going to be the ones bearing the consequences. But sometimes when these things manifest and when they turn into being a real problem, it's 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 almost too late to to, to put the brake on. And then you've got wrenching decisions that need to be made that can cause real hardship. I think we're all looking back to what happened when we ended up with wage and price controls and uh, uh, energy shortages and um, and double digit interest rates. I, 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 I my, my parents lived through that. I don't think it's inconceivable that we could end up living through that again. And, and shouldn't that be a factor? Right. So great questions. And I, I think you're right that a lot of the analysis um, like the, the different points they might make in different contexts, it's not internally consistent. So to give you a good <laughs> example, at least I, I haven't looked at their latest iteration, but originally, like when they put out the green uh, Ocasio-Cortez's office, you know, releasing preliminary uh, um, documents, memos talking about what the Green New Deal should contain, it had, on the one hand, spending just trillions of dollars to uh, fit with, you know, modern insulation and so on to, to make every major structure in the u.s energy efficient you know so that it, you know the insulation was good and so forth um and then but also they wanted to completely move towards what they called clean energy by a certain date and if you think about it if they achieve the, what they call clean energy you know so zero emission technology for all the electricity sector in in home heating and whatnot well then you don't need to have the buildings be super insulated, right? Like the, the insulation comes in, oh, because we don't want to waste power. Well, why? Oh, because we don't want to coal fire. But if all the electricity is made through solar and wind, then you don't, it's okay to, you know what I mean? So just little things like that where, well, it's not little, huge glaring inconsistent like that, that clearly it's not even that they're putting two and two together there. It's just, oh yeah, energy efficient buildings and look at all the trillions that we can spend on hmm. infrastructure. And then, oh yeah, of course we want you know zero emission energy production by this date, and not realizing that if you did the one, that would obviate the need for the other. So yeah, there's lots of basic stuff like that where it's not a coherent thing. It's just again a hodgepodge of stuff they wanted to do anyway, or rewarding certain groups. Mm -hmm. Like that's really good for construction unions and wherever they have trillions of dollars flowing from Washington for them to retrofit all the buildings. You get a lot of labor unions that would vote for you to, to keep that money flowing. So does it really matter whether that is consistent with the alleged Green New Deal. Um, so, so that's all, you know, part of it too, that this really is a political thing and you shouldn't expect too much consistency in terms of what they're saying the goal is. Um, and, and then, yeah, you're right. It's, it's odd that if what they want to do is reduce consumption and people, I keep talking about, oh, people eat too much meat, you know, Americans travel way too much. You know, I'm sure you, you guys in Canada hear this too, that, you know, Look at if you just reduced your how many air how much air travel you did. Look at you know how much more you would cut emissions than you know a thousand people living in India or something. And so yeah, why would you want to then have these other things that are going to support income, right? So you're right. It's it's this mix of things where they 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 got to get the average person on board. They can't tell the average person your standard of living is going to plummet if you follow us. 
So they have to make it look good to them. But yet the other stuff they're recommending to appeal to the environmentalist desire and, the, and those two things don't go together. I would just make a, a final observation. I wonder if you could comment on it too. It, it does seem to me that uh, there isn't an alternative aspirational vision like the Green New Deal out there that encapsulates everything that we've talked about here. It seems like when we go, I made the comment about the marketing campaign that is mm -hmm. is pushing some of this forward. It doesn't seem like there's sort of a, a counter marketing campaign on the on the side of free enterprise and reason and logic and um, and and human human achievement and and growing living standards. And I I don't I don't know why that is. I'm not I'm not sure why the uh, the alternative argument is having such a hard time even getting out there or gaining any traction and. I don't know if you were to write an alternative <laughs> to the Green New Deal. What, what do you think those aspirational elements should be? What, what, what should we be talking about? Well, you're right. And it's, you know, there's the slogan is you can't beat something with nothing. And so, yes, it's not. Yeah, we can sit here and point out the flaws in the Green New Deal or the 1.5 C tart. But if all we're ever doing is playing defense and telling people, no, this would be a bad idea because it's then again, the public just by default kind of goes with. Oh, at least these people over here are proposing something. And I can see that I'm not totally happy with the way the world is right now. And so you're right. Um, and also, too, it's to go back to a point you made earlier when you were working with the um, Federation of Businesses that you're right. In, in the long run, there isn't this huge trade-off that those countries that were the most um, that respected private property rights that scored well on you know the index of economic freedom, they tend to have the cleanest environments, you know, by almost any conventional metric you want to use, you know, air pollution, however you would define it, is much better in Canada and the U.S. now than it was 100 years ago, certainly better than it is in, in China. Um, you know, the, the Chernobyl disaster in the Soviet Union was way worse than the Three Mile Island problem <laughs> in the U.S., right? So it, that, that's not a coincidence, right, that um, when, you know, the political system is in charge of something that makes economic growth lower. And so one way of thinking of it is humans, as they get richer, can afford the luxury of a cleaner environment. Because again, there's always in the short term trade-offs, but the richer you are, the more easily you can accommodate those trade-offs. Um, it is also too, like with child labor, right? In very poor countries, the, the kids have to go to work at an early age. Otherwise the family starves. Whereas when we're wealthier, we can afford to say, no, 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 our kids can just go to school and play you know, until they're 16 or 18 or what have you. And that's fine. We can afford it. Whereas if we were to impose that mm. on certain countries now, that would be a disaster. Or if we impose that on Great Britain in the year 1700, that would have been a disaster. So in general, there isn't this, this trade-off in that flourishing markets, you know, respect for private property rights freedom, you know, the freedom of people to make their own decisions to decide if they want to buy an SUV or they want to buy a more fuel efficient vehicle. They have those options. And, you know, economic progress tends to go hand in hand with uh, pristine environments. And again, even on something like climate change, they have all sorts of scientists working on various things that we could do if we needed to. And so how are you going to fund those? Again, just general economic progress to fund research and innovation stuff you're talking about, carbon capture, whatnot. I think instead of us trying to decide right now, and there's certainly a handful of politicians and regulators deciding this is how humanity is going to solve climate change over the next 200 years, instead, just let a thousand flowers bloom and let freedom work. And freedom has historically worked very well. What a great note to end on. Thank you so much for the conversation today. I sure appreciate it.
Thanks for having me, Danielle. It's a pleasure. That is Robert Murphy. He is a senior fellow with the Mises Institute and a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit FraserForum.org. 